The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team. We have a distinguished group today, as always, including Dr. Tamim Nazif, Director of Clinical Research, Dr. Omar Kalik, Director of Multimodality Imaging, and Dr. Torsten Vall, Director of Clinical Research, or as we call it, Director of Large Animal Research. Today, we'll be talking about the low-risk trials. This was the highlight of ACC. Uh, This is the presentation of low-risk TAVR trials. Everyone stood up, clapped, maybe not quite as much as MitraClip, but it was still a, a big show of unity between cardiology and surgery and everyone hugged hands and, you know, uh, hugged and held hands and, um, and uh, had a great time. So we're going to figure out and we're going to talk about how important this is and some of the, the metrics that were presented and how this is going to affect how we take care of patients. So um, first of all, you know, Tamim, can you uh, just summarize what, what your thoughts were, your impressions just from the data, you know, spectacular data overall. Surgical data is pretty good. Um, what did, what was your first impression when you when you saw the the, the data and the slides? Transcatheter aortic valve replacement, the minimally invasive catheter-based valve replacement, is at least as good as surgery, and in some settings, particularly when working for the groin, might even be better than surgery. However, we had not yet arrived at treating the lowest risk patients, which are in fact the bulk of the patients. And, and the presentation of these two trials uh, was really that final, um, that final piece, the treatment of the lowest surgical risk patients. Patients were randomized to either receive the transcatheter valve replacement from the groin or surgical aortic therapy. And the trial really clearly showed that the catheter-based therapies are at least as good for the endpoints of rehospitalization and importantly death and stroke. So let's go to that because that's one of the first things that you pointed out. So how important is rehospitalization compared to death and stroke? You know, we don't have that in the core valve trial and you could make an argument that uh, if you just make death and stroke your composite endpoint, it was still superior, but it was a lot less superior. And a lot of the events that you get statistically were from hospital readmissions. So, Omar, what do you think about hospital readmissions? Is that the same as a non-disabling stroke, disabling stroke, or death? Would you rather be rehospitalized or die? I would rather be rehospitalized uh, with the absence of death. <laughs> but I think um, one of the things to highlight, as you mentioned, is that there wasn't as much of a difference when looking at death and stroke. And I think, uh, you know, the, the transcatheter field has been pushed forward, you know, starting with all the innovations by... Alain Cribier and our boss, Dr. Marty Leon. Um, but I think it's actually also pushed, pushed the surgical field forward. So I think both you know, parallel lines of therapy have, have really been pushed and, and become a lot better, which was shown in this data. So I guess what I'm asking is, is it clearly superior? You know, when we read the, the, the headlines, when we read the manuscript, we say 
this is potentially a superior therapy at a one-year outcome for low-risk patients based on the metrics of death, stroke, or rehospitalizations. Is that really defining what clinically superiority should be? Well, for the short term, I would say it is. The, 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 the big question is still, what will the long, will the long term uh, data show? On the other hand, if you, particularly in this now younger population that were just in their low 70s, you, would, you could argue that um, these patients would live even longer if they had more disabling strokes or strokes in general, right? They, they have a longer impairment of their quality of life if they have a bad outcome in the index procedure. So, so I don't, I don't, I'm not disargue, I'm not arguing really about stroke. I think stroke was spectacularly lower in Taver, and it's pretty consistently lower. And, and this data has just now brought that into a much more prominent light. I think it wasn't quite as prominent in, in the high risk and intermediate trials, obviously. I mean, I guess really what I'm asking is the rehospitalization endpoint to, to some extent, um, and how that impacted how the narrative came out for Taver to some extent. You know, I, I do think it's important. I, I think that it's not just rehospitalization that was clearly lower in the transcatheter therapy arm. It's also return to quality of life. So if you look at 30 days, it's clear in these studies that the, the minimally invasive catheter procedure gives patients a much more rapid return to quality of life. It's true that by one year, the therapies are roughly equivalent uh, with respect to that. But quality of life and rehospitalization are important to, I think, this younger, uh, otherwise healthier patient population that may, for example, still be uh, working or very active, say, in the community or leading an active lifestyle. So I think it is something important to patients. On the same level as death and stroke? Well, Probably I think not. as long as death and stroke are at least equivalent, and in fact, in one of the trials, death and disabling stroke was, in fact, statistically superior, but as long as they're at least equivalent, I think that will drive adoption broadly. If you present to a patient, I have two treatments that are equally safe with respect to dying or having a stroke, but one of them is going to allow you to be in the hospital for half the amount of time or less to have a much more rapid uh, return to a good quality of life and less risk of rehospitalization. I think the patients will jump at that. That's certainly what I would want. Yeah. No. I mean, I think you can make that argument for a lot of the metrics, but we chose rehospitalization as as the main one, and so that was one of the things I was focusing on. Um, yeah, I agree with Tamim's comments, and uh, I would I would also add that you know obviously cost is is secondary to outcomes but i'd be interested in the future to also see the cost analysis on that which is going to be a, a big factor in these procedures as they expand no that's a good point the cost analysis clearly will favor taver probably in a big way because really the event rate was really driven by the rehospitalizations so let's go to the let's go to the death um, late death do you think late death from all causes should be included in these trials. You know, we have TAVR trials that we're going to be following now for 10 years. People cross the street on 168th Street and get run over by an ambulance here. You know, you're, you're more at risk walking down the street uh, near our hospital than you are or eating a sandwich in the cafeteria than, than getting a TAVR and dying, right? Do we include that as uh, our long-term outcome death? I mean, if you look at the, the supplemental index, there, there's, someone, there's an automobile accident in there. There's a myelodysplasia. There's, 
there's stuff that's going to start looking really funny when we get to a couple years and five years and 10 years. How do we interpret that? I think cardiovascular mortality will be important to look at. And it may be very interesting to look at um, death related to reinterventions. Maybe that will over time inform our decision making uh, slightly differently. But so far we have no indication for that. We sometimes see patients that come back early after surgical valve replacements with failure that require reintervention. And sometimes we see patients that had TAVR, they return for early reintervention. But I would say, at least empirically from our clinical uh, day-to-day life, these, these number of patients are, are relatively uh, small. And, and, uh, but we have now the opportunity from these two l- large randomized controlled trials to follow these patients and collect that information. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure that these sort of non-cardiovascular deaths will be so high as a percentage of the of the overall total. What I think will be key to follow and that people will be really uh, keenly interested in are, are two parameters in the long term. One is the echocardiographic uh, parameters, specifically of, of transvalvar gradients and, and late regurgitation. Uh, and, and then secondly, re-intervention rates. So oh, Tamim, you had to bring it up. You had to bring <laughs> it up. All right, so then we're going to talk about it. So let's talk about the hemodynamics, you know. Shoot, I shouldn't have given uh, anything. <laughs> you know, it, there's two concepts here, and I think there are two questions and concerns. One was uh, when we look across trials, when we look across low-risk trials between the valves, do we think that there's really an appreciable difference between hemodynamics between a balloon expandable and a self-expanding? They're reflected in the numbers in the trials. Do we think that's a clinical, uh, a clinical issue or phenomenon that we actually see? I mean, I would argue that there is. That's why we do uh, self-expanding for valve and valve to improve hemodynamics. Um, and there's no question that the gradients that we see for self-expanding are better. Um, do we need to, you know, look at this, especially for low-risk patients that, that frankly, you know, in the balloon expandable trial had had gradients and hemodynamics that were worse than surgery. You know, number by number, it was worse for area and gradients. You didn't point that out uh, a couple of years ago when, when the numbers were exactly reversed. The, the but, numbers don't lie, but, Torsten. But, the uh, numbers don't lie. But, uh, no, I, I, I think for one, um, uh, we, what I take away from that, we cannot hand you the inflator anymore. You purposely uh, give <laughs> under-deflate our valves and give us worse gradients. But to be serious about it, um, I think, I, think uh, I mean, if you look in the, in, in, in the results, it, it is interesting that the surgeons changed. It, look, it looks like the surgeons actually responded to what we've been talking about at these meetings for a long time and changed their uh, technique and uh, more root enlargements were done, or overall, at least, uh, it looks like bigger valves were, bigger valves were <laughs> implanted. Uh, and, and so that, I think, um, is interesting. Now... I'm not so sure that we have any data so far with these small differences in gradients that indicate truly a difference in mortality. Um, if you look at the uh, core valve data five years out, the, um, the gradients are uh, different between the surgical and the uh, transcatheter valve by about four to five millimeters of mercury. And at five years, the mortality is the same in the two group, even though core valve started uh, with superior mortality at one and two years in that study. So 
I'm not. Con I think there is there is obviously an inflection point uh, in the gradients where mortality will increase. From the valve in valve registry, we felt that that was around 20 millimeters of mercury. Maybe it's a little lower than that. Uh, uh, maybe it's something to think about. But um, I'm not convinced that we will see measurable uh, differences in mortality just based on two, three, four millimeters or here the surgical difference to the yeah so it's one, two, two three four for surgery so at one year the taver gradient was 13.7 um in balloon expandable and uh i'll pull it up for the self-expanding it was nine mean, so mean gradient mean gradient yeah. so yes yeah, so, i mean i think torsten's point is important I, and it goes back to what i was talking about earlier i think the trial has also pushed you know, the surgical techniques forward because, uh, you know, this, the surgeons realize that, you know, this is the EOA and, and the valve area is a very important issue, the hemodynamics. Um, so with the change in practice of putting in larger valves, I think that was largely driven by being in the trial itself and, and previous trial experience. Um, but in terms of the self-expanding versus balloon expandable, you know, it's a balance, right? These are younger patients and do you want a little bit of a higher gradient or do you want more paravalvular leak, which, which will also impact potentially in the long term? So the paravalvular leak actually didn't change from, uh, from this trial to, to any, across the trials. It's, the mild is still about 29%. So Right, and that's another important uh, uh, question that we're going to be looking at, obviously, very carefully. There was some early data from the very original partner trial that even mild degrees of PVL uh, may have adverse prognostic implications. However, over time and as we've analyzed additional data sets, it's become increasingly clear that it's really only sort of moderate to severe paravalvular regurgitation that has a significant prognostic uh, effect. And, and in these trials, moderate or severe PVL was vanishingly low uh, in, the, in the transcatheter arms. But this, this question about the mild PVL, I think, is still out there and will be worth looking at. I think, you know, that that goes back to, you know, the issue of what these ventricles look like. You know, these are typically smaller, stiffer, thicker ventricles. And there was this a cardiac MRI trial out of the Quebec group, uh, which showed that a regurgitant fraction of 30% by CMR uh, was prognostically significant. Th and, and 30% that's just, is a lot, that's, right? That's the cutoff between mild and moderate. It's not actually a high number. Right. It's not, you wouldn't consider that significant in a native AR valve. So I think, I think we're going to see moving forward, but it's going to be interesting to see how that affects this younger population. The yeah. nice thing is we move yeah. out of some of these trials and, and really into our clinical practice is, is we're not really constrained to one system or the other in our practice. We have access to, to multiple therapies and, it's a nice, and surgery as well. So it's a nice opportunity, I think, to do sort of individualized risk assessment with, with each patient. And if you have someone, for example, with a small valve and valve or a small native annulus, you might for that reason, choose a self-expanding, for example, or you might say PVL is more important and I'm really going to do everything I can in, in this specific patient uh, uh, to obliterate PVL. And I think there's going to increasingly be a role of sort of imaging-based individualized risk assessment that can really allow us to optimize these results. Yeah, to me, that's a great point. I, I really agree with, with that. And I think, um, you know, each valve system has its pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages. And I think we're going to have to find some compromises based on patient's anatomy and individual decisions and, uh, and wishes. 
And that's going to um, be a really fertile area, I think, for ongoing research that, that we'll be doing here and, and I'm sure others as well. One of the other things that I just wanted to remark about was how incredibly safe the procedure has become. It was unbelievable that patients uh, are awake uh, and the, the rate of catastrophic things happening is incredibly low. Um, and I think that really drove the success of the trial. I mean, the, uh, the overall procedure was done very, very, very well. As well as surgery was done, there's still in some small inherent risk of, of the PEA arrest. If you look at the data, there's three patients that just pay arrest, and then that's it. Um, it's going to be hard to remove that from surgery, but you can get that you know, you can get those catastrophic events pretty close to a near zero event for, for TAVR, which I think um, is a big deal for a patient, right? Um, so um, last thing, you know, the stroke rates. So stroke rates compared to surgery. Again, another thing that surgery really just has not been able to shake quite, quite so well. And, you know, if you tell a patient your stroke rate is either 4% or 0.8%, you know, what do you want to think about? What exactly do you think in the procedure, it, whether it's the device, the procedure, the sizing, what do you think has made the, the biggest impact in reducing stroke rates? Not doing a pre-dilatation? We'll go around the room. Torsten? Well, I think patients in this particular study, I think patients are a big factor, right? So these are now lower risk uh, patients uh, and, and their baseline stroke rate, I think is different. Their calcium burden is different. But there's no question that we uh, observed a major uh, decrease in, in stroke rate with the newer generation devices. But when you now compare the intermediate risk trials and the low risk trials, there hasn't been that much of a change in the technology. So, so I think, um, honestly, the patient factor really played a big role. I don't know why that didn't translate into the surgical arm as much. Isaac, um, I, I forgot in the trial, did they mention about embolic protection use in, in the trial? It was not allowed in either trial. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, I think uh, I agree with Torsten that, you know, looking at the data, this, the intermediate and, high, and the low risk, there was not much of a difference in terms of TABR for stroke rate, but there was a difference from, you know, partner one and the earlier trials. So I think it's it's the devices, the flexion systems on on the, the, the Sapien, and also um, definitely the techniques. I think, you know, from when I started doing the imaging for these in 2011, I think that uh, you know we're a lot more cognizant of staying in the center of the lumen and and really being a little more gentle crossing the valve, et cetera. So I think the equipment and the techniques have really contributed to that. In addition to these increasingly lower risk patient populations. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with all of these points. I think um, th what's, what's undeniable is that there's been a downward march in the stroke rates. You know, with the publication of the original uh, Partner 1A study, there was an editorial, prominent editorial by Hartzell Schaff in the New England Journal saying, you know, Taver, but sort of at what cost? And the cost that he was pointing out was the uh, perceived higher stroke rate or the real uh, higher stroke rate in that era. Uh, but we've marched to lower risk patients that have a lower underlying uh, risk of stroke. We have device systems that, that just make those original TAVR systems look incredibly primitive, you know, better nose cones, uh, more flexible, more steerable, um, tremendous advancement in the technology. And then finally, there's been a tremendous amount of community learning 
uh, in the field and, you know, uh, expertise in, in how to perform these procedures. We no longer need to routinely dilate, pre-dilate. We are better with our sizing. It's just tremendous learning in the field. So I think it's been a combination of of all of these factors is really stroke uh, like vascular complications, one of these areas where you've really seen tremendous uh, improvement over time. So Isaac, can I ask you a, a question about yeah, the of surgery? Course. So in the previous studies, we noted that actually the surgical outcomes strongly outperformed the predicted SDS score. This time, not so much. So is there, is there a ceiling how, how good surgery can get? And at, at, or is it just that the population pool is larger and the SDS score calculation is more reliable in, in this data set? I think, I think the, the latter is true. Um, I think when you have uh, the majority of patients in a data set, the majority fall into this age range. Um, the the high-risk patients have uh, fewer patients, and so the accuracy of STS scoring uh, as a modeling tool becomes less predictable and less reliable. Um, so I think you're going to have greater variations in uh, how accurate it is. I think STS does a pretty good job across the board, especially for something like isolated AVR, isolated cabbage, isolated mitral valve repair, things like that. You, you have to do something extraordinary to get the complication rate as good as what you're seeing here, just due to the nature of what you're doing. Um, and I think that's something for surgeons to work on, but not necessarily obsess on. I think the quality of surgery is that you can do things very reliably. You can get valve performance and PVL uh, uh, you know, to an extremely high rate. You can have very low pacemaker rates. You can um, hopefully, the one thing we have to work on is getting stroke rates down to the one to 2%. I mean, right now at 4%, that's too high. Um, but the other aspects are inherent to surgery to some extent. And then the, the quality or value proposition for surgery is that you get something that lasts a long time and that works very well and that you can uh, take care of a lot of pathology for. So, you know, the way I look at it, isolated AVR, you know, if there, there was always going to be some evolution in therapy that was going to take away isolated valve problems or isolated medical problems. And this is, Tavera has just come along, and this is, this is one of the things that will supplant surgery for a lot of patients. Um, I don't think it will necessarily supplant surgery for the multivalve disease, for the complex coronary disease or the anatomically difficult complex patients. But for, for the other patients, I think it is a, a really good option. So an interesting question uh, that sort of dovetails with that is, is the recent discussion around the proposed new national coverage determination. Um, and we know that roughly half the centers in the United States that offer surgical aortic valve replacement do not offer transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And I'm, I'm curious just sort of how you think we should deal with uh, offering all of our patients these therapies. To me, a wonderful question. We are actually going to have a podcast dedicated specifically to that topic, volumes, outcomes, centers, distribution of uh, care and TAVR versus surgery. Uh, it's an important topic. Great. I think that'll be a really important discussion. Well, this is a great discussion, guys. We're going to wrap it up here today. We'll see you next time.